This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our third episode in our four-part series on Aldous Huxley's negative utopia, Brave New World. In episode one, we met Huxley and toured London's Central Hatchery, covering chapters one and two. In episode two, we discussed chapters three through five, meeting two characters from the novel, I want to point out the, that they are main characters, and, and when they were introduced, I expected them to be heroes, <laughs> but these two are definitely not heroic. Those people are Bernard Marx and Lennon a Crown. Through the first five chapters, we accompany them on an average evening, an average evening for everyone in a brave new world, not just for them. An average evening in this world consists of two things, soma taking and sex. Now, in episode three, we accompany these two as they cross the Atlantic to the American continent and then return again in chapters six through 11. They bring back with them a character who comes closest to being a hero. Uh, He comes closest to being us, John Savage from the reservation. Our plan today is to explore primitive life on the reservation and the contrast that Huxley creates for us, as well as watch John the Savage as he interacts with the brave new world on his return. Christian, before we get into that, uh, I want to revisit a few important ideas from earlier episodes. As we think about how Huxley uh, drew these standardized humans in their lives, it's more and more obvious uh, that Huxley himself is not advocating for a life of comfortable uh, comfort and, and happy life, at least in the way he defines these terms. Comfortable meaning no anxiety and happy meaning full of distractions and entertainment. Right. And, and we have to read the entire book really as irony. Everything he is defending or the characters are, are, are talking about, he is defending the opposite of what he's describing. And it's what makes the book confusing to to many readers. I mean, the farther we get into the chapters, the bitter the irony becomes. I mean, even positive words like hygienic and beautiful and happy are used by Huxley. And and we question, is that even a good thing? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
That is dystopian. I mean, yeah. you know, one place to pay attention to is when reading how the characters talk to and about each other. What we see is that there is zero sense of what we would consider to be meaningful relationship. They talk about each other. They talk to each other as if they were merchandise or to use Huxley's term, meat, dead or alive. Huxley, as a student of biology and psychology, really pushes the uh, scientific boundaries and uh, even our imaginations to the limits. He asks, how far will society or the power structure of our world go when it comes to psychological manipulation through conditioning? Um, Are there ethical limits or boundaries in the messages we hear uh, from political or commercial leadership? And Huxley does not really see that there is a difference between these two. And uh, not just through repetition and peer pressure, but really also through uh, government and cultural sanctioned drug use and sexual behaviors. And all of this, of course, is always expressed as being for the common good. Not even the world leaders in a brave new world have nefarious motives. Of course not. (laughs) There is no obvious villain. There's no Hitler. There's no Stalin out there murdering innocent people. The government is doing everything in the name of the general good. And yet, we as readers are made to question if this is really the case. Right. And as we watch him reverse engineer this world, and by him I mean Huxley, and tackle the primitivism on the reservation... We see that he doesn't idealize that either. It kind of reminds me of Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels, where you had these two extremes, the Yahoos and the Winhams, and neither were really any good. Huxley, after introducing an advanced society with obvious flaws, he switches gears completely and takes us to a reality that's equally extreme. Actually, it's more obviously grotesque, really. The reservation is harsh. It's harsh physically, but it's also brutal emotionally. Humans here are visibly prejudiced, they're cruel, they're superstitious, they're violent, they're also just as prone to addiction as the people in the civilized world. This is a place where all the darkness of mankind is exposed in its most raw form. The environment is physically tasking, zero modern conveniences, there's no scientific programming, there's not any technological support. I mean, they don't even have basic health or hygiene. This world pushes man to the physical limits. It kind of reminds me of that show Survivor on TV. Everything is uncomfortable and everything is physically challenging. And because of that, we see this backbinding and meanness come out in humanity. I mean... Honestly, if I had to choose between these two realities, I would definitely choose the Brave New World over that primitive (laughs) one. (laughs) Uh, I think I might, too. You know, um, Huxley forces a harsh trade-off, and I'm not sure your current conditioning would work well in a Brave New World, um, even if you were born an Alpha Plus. And, Christy, Uh um, I had to break some hard news to you. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm not sure there are any Alpha Pluses high school teachers in this world. In fact, uh, there are no literature or history (laughs) teachers at all. That's a good point. I'm afraid uh, in that world you might be obsolete, good for nothing. (laughs) I think that would include you, too. (laughs) That's true. But even for argument's sake, uh, let's say you did make the cut and you were an alpha at the top of Mustafa Mann's iceberg, as he calls it. I'm still not sure you would be a very good alpha. (laughs) I think you might have been shipped off to Iceland by now. You're not a conformist. Yikes, that's a scary thought. But true. Actually, now that I think about it, I'm already short. Maybe I'm an Epsilon kid in the making already. Oh, my. (laughs) 
Well, on that ridiculous note, uh, let's go back to that comment Huxley made in the foreword in the 1946 edition where he acknowledges that the most serious defect in the story is his offering really no alternative to an insane life in utopia. I mean, in other words, there's no solution to the very serious problems he's presenting in the extreme. Huxley had never visited the Native American reservation when he wrote these passages set on the reservation, and we must not let our 21st century lens distract us from his main point, because these depictions here, um, you know, they're entirely inaccurate, and they wouldn't be written today. Well, that that's kind of an important point to make, I mean, because the reservation, as well as Shakespeare, are, are used symbolically, and they're really talking about larger ideas. I mean, this is not a real representation of Native American culture in any way whatsoever. What he calls uh, an Indian village or life in the village, it's an obvious aberration of real life, something that is to appear to us, the readers, just as abnormal and horrible, maybe even more so than the life uh, in the Brave New World. And not because it's Native American culture, but it's because it's closer to our culture. Huxley claims what he's doing is making a choice between insanity on one hand and lunacy on the other. <laughs> mm, what we would call the old existential double bind. Exactly. There, huh? You know, in that case, uh, what are we comparing here? You know, a life of technology versus one with no technology at all. A society with uh, zero control versus one with total control. Um, you know, a society that believes in God versus a society with no God. Uh, both societies are cruel to nonconformists. Uh, both have punishing and exclusive societal demands on their members. And first, uh, really and most obviously, uh, the observation is that technology solves problems that man faces in fighting nature. But this depiction also reinforces a lesson that history teaches us, and that is that technology is power. He who has the most advanced technology will always impose their will on the rest. We see that in the ancient world. We see it in the colonial world. We see it during the nuclear age. And we see it now with biological as, as well as cyber terrorism. I mean, it's technology that keeps the reservation under complete subjugation. Right. And, and the warden explains this to Lenina and Marx as they fly over it. To touch the fence, is what he says, is instant death. There is no escape from a savage reservation. Those who are born in the reservation, and remember, my dear young lady, in the reservation, children are still born. Yes, actually born, as revolting as that may seem. Those, I repeat, who are born in the reservation are destined to die there. And so we're going to see that the land itself is difficult, and it makes life physically challenging. The fight with nature is at this survival level, and this brings out the extreme in our human nature. There's opportunities to be noble because that's an extreme thing, and we see John admire this, and he aspires to be this. But it also brings out the worst of humanity, and that's even more pronounced. The dark side of humanity is on obvious display. Drugs and technology actually mask the human heart in the brave new world, but they don't on the reservation. The reservation people are openly mean and cruel to John and Linda. They're not just indifferent, which is its own form of cruelty in some ways. Well, Huxley is not advocating a return to a primitive existence as a solution to the problems of the modern world. In fact, 
he satirizes it. Um, in a different piece of writing, he wrote this. The attempt to return to primitiveness is both impractical and wrong. And frankly, try how I may, I cannot much like primitive people. <laughs> of course, that's a horrible, condescending, terrible thing to say. And it reminds me of something, you know, that an older gentleman told me once about his childhood back in Arkansas in the 20s. And he said, he said it in a more polite way. He said, Christy, the good old days were not good. Just because they were old, they were actually really, really hard. <laughs> true. Yes, this is especially true when it comes to health issues. I mean, uh, people died or were crippled with preventable diseases like polio and cancer and measles, and childbirth was dangerous and sometimes lethal. And, you know, there's no question advances in science and technology have extended uh, our life and quality of life. Uh, modern medicine has also taken the edge off of our anxiety in some of the ways that we see in the book. And of course, although this is a good thing, once again, Hux is going to push it to the extreme. Uh, Linda and Bernard can handle no anxiety at all, which is highlighted through their use of Soma on this visit. And even before they arrive, they are stressed and they take some Soma. As they listen uh, to the warden describe primitive life, and I quote, they still preserve their repulsive habits and customs. Marriage, if you know what that is, my dear young lady. Families, no conditioning, monstrous superstitions, Christianity and totemism and ancestor worship, extinct languages such as Zuni and Spanish and Athapascan, pumas, porcupines, and other ferocious animals, infectious diseases, priests, venomous lizards, and, you know... Lenina takes her Soma because uh, she's bored with the lecture. Bernard takes it because he's distracted. Uh, you know, he'd left a tap of cologne on. He was worried about being shipped off to Iceland when he gets back home. Uh, both manage their anxiety with Soma. Uh, and they laugh and then sleep through their ride to Malpace. Malpace. I, I think that's an interesting word. If you break it down, Mal means bad. Pace, you know, means country. And it is a bad country. It stinks. It's dirty. And remember, in the brave new world, everything smells really nice and cleanliness is next to affordliness. It's also populated by unattractive, old-looking people. Uh, when Linda sees one, she grips Bernard's arm and says, look, what is the matter with him? <laughs> oh, she gripped his arm. Look. An almost naked Indian was very slowly climbing down the ladder from the first floor terrace of a neighboring house, rung after rung with the tremulous caution of extreme old age. His face was profoundly wrinkled and black like a mask of obsidian. The toothless mouth had fallen in. At the corners of the lips and on each side of the chin, a few long bristles gleamed almost white against the dark skin. The long, unbraided hair hung down in gray wisps around his face. His body was bent and emaciated to the bone, almost fleshless. Very slowly he came down, pausing at each rung before he ventured another step. What's the matter with him, whispered Lenina. Her eyes were wide with horror and amazement. On the outside, civilized people are superior to primitive ones. Uh, they're in better health and they're more beautiful. And science and technology can easily improve our comfort and even our bodies and the problem is uh, those intangible or spiritual parts of our existence. I mean, even the connection between mind and body is complicated. 
Right. And this is highlighted uh, when Bernard watches two mothers nurse their babies. He makes a really ironic comment. He says this, what a wonderful, intimate relationship, he said, deliberately outrageous. And what an intensity of feeling it must generate. I often think one may have missed something in not having had a mother. And perhaps you've missed something in not being a mother, Linda. Imagine yourself sitting there with a baby of your own. To which Linda replied, Bernard, how can you? I mean, the passage of an old woman with ophthalmalia and a disease of some skin, I mean, it distracted her from her indignation. Let's go away, she begs. I don't like it. <laughs> well, that image right there says a lot. Um, it is shocking for Lenina and Bernard. And it se- they seem to be making fun of something that they can't understand. I mean, in the, the brave new world, the state or the government has taken over responsibility for maintaining not just people's professional lives, but their emotional well-beings as well as their bodies. I mean, there is no connection between anyone. Uh, what is the strongest of human bonds, which is the bond between a mother and a child, is now an object of scorn. And all these two see is weirdness in it. They, they feel no real emotions. They feel no responsibility towards uh, the other. All they know is physical sensation. They like positive sensation. And when they feel the oncoming of negative sensation, they're going to take some soma. You know, civilized people don't take care of anything outside themselves. Uh, the women take contraceptives, but that's it. And no one worries about working out or choosing healthy food or studying for exams. And uh, they don't worry about friends or family. And they don't worry about a job or money. And the reservation highlights the trade-off. Uh, if you have no responsibilities, there's no stress. But there's also no connection. And no need for other people. No need for personal strength. And these two have none of that. I mean, notice how quickly these two pop pills in order to cope with a slight discomfort. They have no personal strength. They have no discipline. Uh, they don't even really have any impulse control. Uh, Mustafa Mon calls the ideal state infantile. And, you know, that's really the right word. Uh, Lenina is very much a baby. She literally can barely walk. She's not used to it. They are infantile in how they respond to everything in the world. Uh, responsibility, personal worth, uh, honor are things that come from personal discipline of your mind and body and spirit. We only see these on a reservation and nowhere in the brave new world. And uh, Huxley asks us to consider if these things matter. Since we can't have it both ways, our ideas like, you know, love and freedom and strength, uh, noble and worthy of sacrifice and difficulty, or are they something that we should trade for a life of ease and pleasure? Well, you know, speaking of relationships and strength, Lenina listens to drums and she watches a manhood ceremony, which is about strength, and confuses it for something she recognizes, a lower caste community seeing, a solidarity service. And there's more irony in that because a solidarity service is an imitation of what she's actually watching. She's watching actual community building. And although those solidarity services are called that, that's not what they are. These primitive religious ceremonies are weird and and they're extreme even to us because, you know, they bring out snakes. They flog a young man. There's lots of blood, but they have meaning to these people. And it's in this context that Huxley introduces John the Savage. 
Now, this character looks like no one else on the reservation. In fact, he looks like the brave New World people. He emerges from outside the crowd. He's the closest thing to us. This is important because he's really not a member of either world or maybe a little bit of both worlds. His mother came to the reservation years ago on a vacation. In fact, Bernard figures out that the director of the hatchery is the one that helped get her lost. He left her there. She gave birth to John, and that condemned her to never to be able to return to the civilized world because now she is that unspeakable word, a mother. When Bernard and Linda see Linda... John the Savage's mother, she's no longer the beautiful beta that she used to be. She's missing teeth. The rest of her teeth are brown. She's unbathed. She reeks of alcohol. Her face is blubbered and contorted. All the lines in her face are flabby and wrinkly. Her cheeks sad. She has purple blotches. Her eyes are bloodshot. She has red veins on her nose. Her breasts are enormous. Her stomach bulges. Her nails are black. I mean, she pretty much looks like she's 100 years old, but... She's in her mid-40s. Life on the reservation has not been good to her. Has it been good physically, mentally, or even spiritually? Well, uh, no. Uh, she can't survive there. Uh, first, uh, first of all, she can't make friends, uh, nor even wants to. And I think this is one of the most obvious differences between these two worlds. Not that one has technology and one doesn't, but that one has relationships and one doesn't. Uh, Linda is a disconnected person by design. In the Brave New World, relationships serve no purpose. Everyone belongs to everyone else. Everyone is born to do a specific job for the group that's the end of all human existence. And her infantile state is not well received in a world that requires people to care, you know, not just for themselves, but for each other. She can't really care for or take care of her son, John. When Bernard and Linda meet John, Bernard asks John to tell him the story of his life. John doesn't do that, but he does recollect it in his mind, so we as readers can see a little bit of what his life is like on the reservation. Uh, we can also see how it compares to what Linda calls the other place. Because of Linda, he really isn't a part of the community, although um, he has adopted some of their values. His worldview has been formed by his interpretation of a book. He's been shaped by the Christian humanist world of Shakespeare. And that world is, although not exactly ours, is closer to ours than these other two extremes. And uh, John, appearance-wise, looks civilized, but he is part of the reservation, another part of us, and he's an outsider. It says in that long silence, uh, the space of time between when Bernard asked John about his life and when he finally responds, John remembers his life, good and bad. He remembers lullabies of hypnopedic sayings that Linda would sing to him in the big bed. He remembers trying to protect his mom from both a man who came to sleep with her and these wives of men that Linda had been sleeping with who came to attack her. He remembers being happy when Linda told him stories of the other place, a place where people fly around and babies come from bottles. He remembers Linda teaching him to read. And then on his 12th birthday, he remembers her giving him an old book she'd found tossed about somewhere called The Complete Works of Shakespeare. Shakespeare will be a motif in the book from this point onward. And that means something that we see over and over again. <laughs> well, Christy, what is the point of all these Shakespearean references? I mean, you mentioned that's how John got a lot of his values. Uh, but is that the main takeaway? 
Well, that's one takeaway, but it's not the only one. I mean, there's so many Shakespearean quotes and they're used all sorts of ways. Obviously, the title comes from The Tempest. And we hear the reference to this play for the first time after Bernard invites John to come back with him to the new world. John says this after understanding that he's getting off the reservation and he's going to the other place. To think it should be coming true. What I've dreamed of all my life. Do you remember what Miranda says? Bernard, of course, does not know the Shakespearean reference to the main character of The Tempest and says, who's Miranda? To which John begins to quote, Oh, wonder how many goodly creatures are there here. How beauteous mankind is. John thinks of beautiful Miranda and says, Oh, brave new world. He asks Bernard if he and Linda are married. And when Bernard says, For no, (laughs) John laughs with pure joy and says, Oh, brave new world. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. John is dreamy and he's excited. And uh, he created this heavenly, romanticized view of how the world works uh, from reading Shakespeare. And and because the way his mother has talked about it, he superimposed everything he can imagine to be wonderful on this other place. And notice that the first question he asks is about relationships. Something he will sadly learn is non-existent in the other place. This heavenly, dreamy understanding of the other place is dismantled in the brave new reality. Still, the works of Shakespeare help him and have helped him understand himself and express his feelings. John repeats the quote from The Tempest three more times, and each time he repeats it more ironically as he better understands and really comes to hate the other place. Beyond this quote from the title, there are dozens of Shakespearean references. Huxley references The Tempest eight times. He references Othello eight, Hamlet ten, Macbeth and Romeo and Juliet six times each, Lear and Charlottes and Cressida, they're both mentioned five times. Not to mention that there's a statue of King Lear that's a historical monument Mustafa has taken down when he gets rid of history. The Merchants of Venice, it's mentioned twice. Anthony and Cleopatra, they're mentioned twice, although it is the same line. Midsummer's Night Dream is quoted. Timon, Twelfth Night, Julius Caesar, As You Like It, King John, Measure for Measure. They're all quoted. Huxley even quotes a Shakespearean poem, The Phoenix and the Turtle. What do you think of that? (laughs) Sounds like he did that on purpose. You know, that's a lot and more than I think most of us would have recognized. It's, It's not difficult to tell when John is quoting Shakespeare. He sounds like Shakespeare when he does. How important uh, is it to know these plays? No, it's not really that important. I mean, Shakespeare is serving as a stand-in for more than just the content of his plays. He represents ideas from the past. First, because Shakespeare's style is so recognizable and obviously different from the way everyone is talking, we can tell that John's thoughts are things that he got from Shakespeare. And Huxley is wanting us to consider the value of ideas from the past. Does the past have value? I mean, this is the point Mustafa Mann makes to John when explaining why Shakespeare was banned. They're banned because they're old. That's what he tells him. Shakespeare speaks of thoughts and ideas people have been discussing through time and across cultures about life for centuries, about what life means, how we're connected to each other in the world, and how should we be, and how should we relate our choices, what we make of life. These questions are all unsolvable problems in the real world. That's the point. 
but they're not unsolvable problems in the brave new world because the brave new world has solved all of our relationship drama by dismantling human relationships at all. Individual thinking must be eradicated for there to be peace. Hmm. You know, John, uh, by reading Shakespeare, was interacting with ideas and emotions that have challenged and fueled human thought. I mean, Mond calls it high art. Right. And because of John's rejection on the reservation, he needs help understanding his own existence. I mean, let's quote Hamlet here. Who else in this story has suffered the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune (laughs) more than John the Savage? He's rejected by his mother. She has zero capacity to love. She came from a bottle. Her conditioning has suited her only to seek pleasure for herself, and that's what she does on the reservation. She has sex as often as she can with as many people as she can, and she takes as many primitive drugs as she can get her hand on. What else is she supposed to do? (laughs) I mean... You know, in our world, uh, social services would have been called on Linda. (laughs) So true. She is a bad person by our standards of morality as well as the standards of of that primitive society because she will not assume responsibility as a mother. I mean, ironically, however, she is a perfect person in a brave new world. Uh, John also was utterly rejected by his society. And that's where Bernard sees something in common. Well, at least he thinks he does when he looks at John. They're both rejected. They're both aware of their own individual selves, but it goes farther than that. In fact, being aware of your individual self is a healthy thing. What John understands is that pains him is that he's alone. He's not accepted by his community. He's only an individual. He's not part of anything. He's missing that. This is uh, one of those human paradoxes. I mean, on the one hand, Humans must be allowed to be individuals, but we also must live in community. Uh, John, in both big and small ways, is constant, constantly being reminded that he re- he's rejected by his community. He's not allowed to participate in the normal ceremonies and traditions of the group. He's refused the rites of passage that would bring him in uh, and acknowledges manhood or personhood in their eyes. And uh, he has been from birth a social outcast. I mean, in short, he's denied a relationship, and this is the sting that hurts him, not the lack of technology. There are two things that happens to John on the reservation that give him agency, and they make him very interesting to us as readers. The first is his mother gives him, you know, that old book, Shakespeare, that she found. But the other is this old man of the tribe, Metsima, who, when John is 15, teaches John how to make clay pots. I point this out because Mitsima mentors John in the way that people in our world mentor each other through personal interaction. This is the one person who spends time with John, and this nourishes John. Mitsima teaches him skills, but he also sings. John experiences happiness when they're together. The text says he absorbs happiness. It's a happiness of a different kind than what Lenina feels when she's popping one of those Soma pills. It's the happiness of relationship. It's what he romanticizes and he sees in the works of Shakespeare. One sentence after he talks about absorbing happiness with Mitsima, we see John devastated because Kiakame, this girl that he loves, is married to Kothlu. And for him, he uses a biblical allusion. He says this, it is finished, like he's dead or something. 
In response to this disappointment, as well as the other rejections of the clan, John does what no one in the civilized world would even think to do. He takes initiative. He wants to do something for himself. So he creates his own initiation to manhood. He creates his own rite of passage, similar to what he thinks the other boys went to. He wants to prove he can measure up that he has these values of endurance and self-reliance, just like the other boys. He does this through his long night vigil in the desert, in the wilderness. He discovers what he calls time and death and God. Hmm. You know, John doesn't know it yet, but these are three things that do not exist in the other place. Um, This contrast sets up uh, his entry into the brave new world because for all of its violence and superstition and ugliness and disease, it still has community and the awareness of time and death and God. And Bernard cannot conceive of any of these things. He's never spent time in a wilderness, although he's kind of romanticized that experience for himself. True. But let's read what John tells Bernard about himself. Alone, always alone. The words awoke a plaintive echo in Bernard's mind. Alone, alone. So am I, he said in a gush of confidingness. Terribly alone. Are you? John looked surprised. I thought that in the other place, I mean, Linda always said nobody was ever alone there. Bernard blushed uncomfortably. You see, he said, mumbling and with averted eyes, I'm rather different from most people, I suppose. If one happens to be decanted differently, yes, that's just it. The young man nodded. If one's different, one's bound to be lonely. They're beastly to one. Do you know they shut me out of absolutely everything when the other boys were sent out to spend the night in the mountains? You know, when you have to dream what your sacred animals are, they would let me go with, they wouldn't let me go with the others. They wouldn't tell me any of the secrets. I did it by myself, though. Didn't eat anything for five days and then went out one night alone in those mountains. Patronizingly, Bernard smiled. And did you dream of anything? He asked. The other nodded. But I mustn't tell you what. He was silent for a little. Then in a low voice, once I did something that none of the others did. I stood against a rock in the middle of the day in the summer with my arms out like Jesus on the cross. What on earth for? asked Bernard. I wanted to know what it was like being crucified, hanging there in the sun. But why? Why? Well, he hesitated. Because I felt I ought to. If Jesus could stand it, and then if one has done something wrong, besides I was unhappy, that was another reason. Seems a funny way of curing your unhappiness, said Bernard. But on second thought, he decided that there was, after all, some sense in it. Better than taking Soma. (laughs) And so we see the contrast. Uh, You know, the reservation rewards individual strength. Um, It, by its its very essence, is a place where you must nurture strength. And strength brings a sense of individuality, and we feel strong. I mean, it also brings strong feelings and deep feelings, both positive and negative. And um, the reservation brings individual choice and freedom and risk. And reward, and, and every one of these things is exchanged for soma in the civilized world. Anesthetizing, pleasing anxiety, relieving pleasure, producing soma. Yes, and soma replaces those relationships too. And even John, for all of his rejection, still got a little taste of relationship with Mitsima and maybe even with his mother. Mitsima isn't his father, not even really his friend, but he's a teacher and a mentor. In the brave new world, there are no teachers. Learning is done when you're asleep. 
You get the content with no interaction from an elder or a coach. The absence of elders serves a similar educational purpose as the absence of mothers. There's no guidance. There's no mentoring. There's no bonding. There's no transference of wisdom like we get between generations. If you remember in chapter 7, we learn everyone is killed off at 60. The director mentions that that's nature's comment on, you know, (laughs) their uselessness. Mm. I mean, elders, teachers, mothers, fathers. These are people that provide vertical wisdom, advice from experience, grace when we make mistakes, forgiveness, the knowledge that we're okay. More importantly, the knowledge that we're not alone. Others have walked down this road. We're not walking through life alone. Coaches, teachers, parents navigate us through danger. They teach us about resiliency and strength. But none of that is necessary in the brave new world. Uh, no, it's not. And, you know, and after one day on the reservation, Lenina feels entitled, an interesting choice of words there, but she's entitled to six half-gram tablets of Soma, and she checks out on a Soma holiday for 18 hours. You know, Shakespeare is great because of his word magic. He helps us understand and express ourselves, our feelings, human existence. John uses it in lieu of human guidance as a frame of reference so he can understand the world. You know, John's expectations for from romance comes through Shakespeare, which, you know, can be misguided. But he identifies with the passages about betrayal. He identifies with Hamlet because, like Hamlet, he hates the man sleeping with his mother. Let me read what John says. Somehow it was though he had never really hated Pope before, never really quite hated him because he had never been able to say how much he hated him. But now he had these words, these words like drums and singing and magic. I mean, we do not read entertainment to be entertained. That's a misconception. Reading literature is exhausting. We read it for this reason, to understand time, death, and God. Mustafa Mong calls it high art. And as Mon will explain to John later, you have to choose between happiness and high art because you cannot have both. Well, you know, um, John quotes high art as he watches Lenina on her Soma holiday asleep. And he fantasizes about being in love with her and he's ashamed of himself. And, you know, John is filled with shame, which is really one of the most damaging of human emotions. And shame in our world is a necessary emotion to help us form our own code of morals. and um, However, it can also be destructive. And he doesn't know it, but getting on an airplane to the brave new world is not the answer to his loneliness. No, but it's the answer to Bernard's. He has plotted, he has schemed, and the first thing he does back from vacation is out the director of the hatchery for being John's father. Sheer revenge, because that director was going to send him to Iceland. He brings Linda into the room. Everyone looks at her in horror. A girl screams. Another knocks over a test tube of spermatozoa. Linda is described. She's bloated, sagging, a strange and terrifying monster of middle-agedness. Linda looks at the director and says, Of course I knew you, Tomakin. I should have known you anywhere among a thousand. But perhaps you have forgotten me. Don't you remember? Don't you remember, Tomakin? You're Linda. Of course, the entire room erupts in laughter. She goes on screaming above the laughter. You made me have a baby. When she says that, the room goes silent. Yes, a baby, and I was its mother. The text says she flung the obscenity 
like a challenge into the outraged silence. John and Linda are Bernard's tickets to upward mobility, and uh, Bernard claimed to Linda that he wanted to feel deeply to understand being an individual, uh, but none of that was true. I mean, <laughs> no, he wanted to climb the hierarchy uh, for others to stop looking down on him. And so, behind the Soma, we get a little peek that the Brave New World people also have what Joseph Conrad calls that heart of darkness. Man's heart was obvious in the reservation, but here it's muzzled by Soma. Bernard has a very human heart. Huxley uses the word intoxicated to describe how this jump in social status makes Bernard feel. He's invited to everything. And as for the women, I want to quote Bernard here. Bernard had only to hint at the possibility of an invitation, and he could have had whichever of them he liked. Success went fizzling to Bernard's head. He brags to Helmholtz. One on Monday, two on Tuesday, two more on Friday, and one on Saturday. And if I'd had the time or the inclination, there were at least a dozen more who were only too anxious. Bernard and Linda aren't the only ones getting everything they want. Linda is too. She has an unlimited supply of Soma. She takes as much as 20 grams a day. Her doctor projects it's going to finish her off in two months. Of course, John, her son, raises objections to this, but the doctor says, you can't allow people to go popping off into eternity if they've got any serious work to do, but she hasn't got any serious work. In other words, her life has no value. Let her kill herself. The savage is the only one not happy, and the savage, uh, wrote Bernard to Mustafa Mond, refuses to take Soma and seems much distressed because the woman Linda, his mm, and we'll just let everybody know that that M word is mother, <laughs> remains permanently on holiday. It's worthy of note that in spite of his mm, senility and the extreme repulsiveness of her appearance, the savage frequently goes to see her and appears to be much attracted to her. You know, an interesting example of the way in which early conditioning can be made uh, to modify or even run counter to natural impulses. In this case, the impulse to recoil from an unpleasant object. Of course, that's so ironic. We know as readers that there's nothing more powerful or more natural than being attached to your mother. But Bernard finds this unnatural you know, Savage will tour Eton, and he sees how the upper crusts are educated. He stops at the television corporation factory, and he watches all the Deltas and Epsilons get their daily rations of Soma. In other words, he's going to see the range of human existence in the civilized world, and he is shocked. But nothing disturbs him quite like his date with Elena at the Feelys. We're going to conclude with that, but Gary, first of all, the Feelys do have a bit of a historical context for Huxley, which is kind of interesting. Let's end our discussion talking about Feelys and then John's visceral reaction to them. He goes in expecting Shakespeare. Well, they are certainly not Shakespearean. No. Uh, they are brainless, uh, an obvious parody of what people were calling at the time the talkies or movies with sound. And uh, Cinema scared people in its early days. It was immediately recognized as a powerful tool for social transformation, and people were alarmed that it would be a tool for cultural degeneracy, which arguably maybe, you know, that's what's happened. Uh, Charlie Chaplin famously said, I hate the talkies and will not produce talking films. And Huxley called them stupid, and he said this, 
Every kind of organized distraction tends to become progressively more and more imbecile. In place of the old pleasures demanding intelligence and personal incentive, countless audiences soak passively in the tepid bath of nonsense. That's a great line. I love that. No mental effort is demanded of them. No participation. They need only sit and keep their eyes open. You know, it's funny, but he's not wrong. I mean, they're brainless. And of course here, the feelies are the most extreme version of this. They're 40, they have smells, the chairs vibrate. Feelies are pure sensation, and they're also pornographic. John is escorted to one by Lenina on their date. Huxley makes the movie a big deal. The name of it is Three Weeks in a Helicopter. It's a parody in itself we don't have time to get into. But there's the smells. The seats vibrate. The plot is extremely simple. There's a love scene on a bearskin rug. Lenina's reaction to the feely is flushed arousal, to quote Huxley. John's is, and I quote, pale, pained, desiring, and ashamed of his desire. I mean, he, this isn't Romeo and Juliet. This is not Othello. John returns from the feely to his stained and crumpled copy of Othello because the hero in the feely is an African-American. Othello means something to John. Shakespeare was saying something. To understand Othello is to deeply feel something, but the feely meant nothing. Later, when John talks to Mustafa Mann, he says this, Othello's good. Othello's better than those feelies, and Mon will reply, of course it is, but that's the price we have to pay for stability. You've got to choose between happiness and what these people call high art. We've sacrificed the high art. We have the feelies, the scent organ instead, but they don't mean anything. They mean themselves. They mean a lot of agreeable sensations to the audience, but they're, they're told by an idiot, and of course, Mon doesn't disagree. And we're left with the contrast and, of course, Huxley's big question. What kind of life do we want? What kind of society? The duality of our own humanity will not let us have it both ways. As John figures it out, uh, and we will discuss it in the next episode, um, we'll come to the conclusion of this book. uh, And it's going to be just as confusing as the beginning. So... Thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our discussion this week of Huxley's confounding description of the uh, two extreme versions of society, and we hope that we were not a tepid bath. (laughs) So uh, if you enjoy our work, please consider sharing it with a friend. Post a link on your social media. Visit our website. If you're an educator, we encourage you to use the listening guides with your students. As, As we have said before, when you share, we grow, and we thank you for that. Peace out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 